Well, you've heard me talk about it before, magnesium. Remember, my endocrine fellow used to hammer me that magnesium is the body's master mineral. Over 300 critical reactions, including fat metabolism, energy, even digestions, all influenced by mineral that you should be worried about getting enough of, and that is magnesium. So I'm excited to tell you about a new magnesium product called Magnesium Breakthrough, the ultimate magnesium supplement, the best out there with all seven forms of the mineral. The Dr. Drew Show was able to arrange for some uh, magnesium breakthrough stock to be set aside for our audience, and it is the best deal available on this product, I guarantee it. With volume discounts combined with our customer 10% coupon using the code Dr. Drew, you can save up to 40% off select packages on Magnesium Breakthrough. It's amazing. Amazing value, and I promise the deal is only available on this specific website, buyoptimizers.com slash Drew. Not Dr. Drew, slash Drew. The code is Dr. Drew, but the website is buyoptimizers, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Drew. You will not find this deal on Amazon or even the company's own website. Magnesium Breakthrough is the most efficacious magnesium supplement I've ever used. Say goodbye to having to buy different forms of the magnesium to get the complete dose. Go to buyoptimizers.com. Use the code, coupon code, Dr. Drew. Save up to 40% off select packages. Again, that's buyoptimizers.com. Drew. And use coupon code Dr. Drew to save up to 40% off select packages and get the most full spectrum and effective magnesium product ever. All right. Thank you for joining us. It's amazing to get to join you. Here we are. Uh, already interesting choice of language. I'm so curious to see where we're going to go here. Uh, Gary, we all set here? All right, buddy. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. We appreciate you being here. Support the people. Support us. And uh, don't forget, check out drdrew.tv, also the YouTube channel. We're doing a daily stream. Um, you can call in on Wednesdays. We do a call-in show as well. So it's it's all over drdrew.com. It's not, it's not, Gary, it's not as obvious to me that people know how to navigate that website. So I worry that people don't understand what's there. But uh, this podcast, the Adam and Drew, the After Dark stuff, it's all there. So... My privilege to welcome today Linda Ferguson. Uh, the website where you can find more is nlpcanada.com, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at NLP Canada. The new textbook is Resilience, Grow Stronger in a tri- Time of Crisis. I hope you understand, uh, those of you listening, why I would want to talk to Linda <laughs> during this time. Previous previous book was Living Your Purpose, The Heart of NLP. Of course, NLP means a neuro-linguistic processing. Uh, Gary's very quickly making a note to me, which says, ah, new book, right. Uh, For more than the last 20 years, Linda has been practicing uh, NLP Canada training. She's been a leader in face-to-face training in NLP, neurolinguistic programming. And uh, she combines expertise in metaphor, narrative, rhetoric, with a broad knowledge of the current thinking in NLP-related fields. And we're going to get into all of that. Linda, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I am so excited to have a great conversation in the middle of all this. Yes, please. Thank you for that. So uh, maybe we should just start with the basics for people that maybe don't understand uh, when you even use the acronym NLP, what we're talking about here. So just give it some, give a basic sketch. World's worst name. It's actually neuro-linguistic programming. Yes. And it's Already a way of I'm screwing it up. Thinking. Because it's neurology, how do you bring information in through your senses? Linguistic means how do you give it meaning with language? 
And how do we do that in patterns so we can replicate results? So really, it's if you broke down what are people doing when they're thinking, it's neuro-linguistic programming. And is there, I guess the <laughs> obvious question then becomes, are there ways to change it, modify it, work on it, understand it in ways that are uh, therapeutic? Yeah, except I've been like, oh, he's going to ask about therapy. And here's the thing. I, I teach people to think and communicate. And as a result of that, sometimes they have very therapeutic outcomes. Mm -hmm. But I'm really careful. I'm a Canadian. We take our credentials seriously. I am not a therapist. And I'm partly not a therapist because NLP... It uses insights from therapy on change, but it's really about how people work, not how they're broken. Okay, let's keep going. And so <laughs> if you understand how you work, how thinking involves your body, your brain, your mind all together, then you have lots of opportunities to make small changes that make big differences in how you feel, how you behave, and the results you get. And you can apply those to problems or to goals. And, and let me, let me maybe a way to back into all this is with the book. So if people in the book grow stronger in time of crisis, maybe we sort of break down what people can learn from the book. Um, the first thing is in the title. It's that if you want to get through a crisis, or cope with the crisis, that's what you'll do. If you want to get stronger as a result of a challenge, then that's what you'll do. And I really wrote the book for people who would take that very seriously, because I think there are a lot of people out there who are doing their best to be strong for themselves and for other people. And they're looking at some of the problems coming out of the current situation and what they're saying is, I don't have it. How do I get it? How do I get the strength, the courage, the insight, the innovative thinking to keep making a positive difference, even with everything that's going on? And so let's let's dig into, say, one example. Um, I, I mean, it, to me, it feels a little overwhelming to say, cope and get stronger. I mean, I think everyone would choose both, right? And saying the way to cope is to go beyond coping and think uh, what I need to do is I get need to get into that mental gym and build my emotional, physical too, resilience. But it's by concentrating my attention on the strengths I can build that I will cope and I will help other people cope. So as long as I am just coping, I'm focusing on the problem. And there are lots of models that teach you to focus on the problem. Mine isn't one of them. And so let's try to break down an example. Is there some example of resilience and strength uh, from some common phenomenon that people are dealing with? I mean, well, yeah. you read saying I was an expert in face-to-face -face training. And for many, many years, I've said best learning happens face-to-face. And as of the middle of March, that was no longer available. Right. 
And so I had no time, really, um, three days to figure out how to use Zoom effectively to connect with people so I could continue doing my work. If I spent all my time thinking about how Zoom wasn't as good as face-to-face, my Zoom wouldn't be very good. But by focusing on the need, which was people needed to make connections, to have conversations, to have positive energy coming into their days, I was able with my community to turn it around really quickly and to uncover some really great benefits to the new way of doing things, even though not a single person would say, yeah, I'd give up face-to-face contact just to do this. Yeah, I want to talk about why face-to-face is better in a second, but I have a different question first, which is, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine today about a friend of ours who does who's a physicist and does two hours of physics every day. And that has nothing to do with his profession or his day and day out life. He just does that every day as part of his mental training. And as a result, he's a great problem solver. How is that different than an LP approach? Uh, NLP would let somebody else understand what he was doing so they could do it and get the same result. So you're a great host. If somebody comes to you and says, Dr. Drew, how do I do what you do? The temptation is to say, it takes a lot of experience to do what I do. NLP, by looking at how to break down behaviors, emotional states, mental states, into things you can replicate and practice, starts giving people ways of answering those questions so that they can get there faster. So, so I'm going to be a subject. Well, let me, let me ask face-to-face first, and then I'm going to be a subject for you. Why is face-to-face, why has, I understand you solved the problem of being effective with Zoom, but why do you think face-to-face was so important? Um, the nature of being a human being is that we have this mind that thinks that we're aware of. And then we have a brain that is a supercomputer that processes this unfathomable amount of information. And somehow we have to connect those two. The way we connect those two kind of as organisms is through the body. And so when we are present with somebody else, we are picking up all kinds of information that is not in the form of words and that is too fast for us to process consciously. But it gets fed into that enormous, wonderful processor of a brain and it comes out as our instincts about what to say, as our um, inspiration, uh, sometimes as our you know, gut feeling that this isn't a good place to go. But all of that doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from all this really subtle signaling. Most of that we lose through the computer, not as much as I thought we would lose. I think it's a sign of how much we underestimate our adaptability, Mm. that people said, you can't make eye contact through Zoom. You have to look at the camera, not at the person. Mm. But you and I have already made eye contact. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're nodding in sync, even though we can't always be doing that. 
So, so interesting. I, you, there is, I mean, we could talk all day about just those two issues, right? The sort of body-to-body yeah. transmission of information, interoceptive experiences that are transmitted to the supercomputer, you call it. I, I, that's that's a whole area that just fascinates me because it's so we don't really know what's going on there. We just know a lot's going on. Yeah, I'm uh, just down the road from Waterloo, Ontario, where they are building a computer model of a human brain, mm. and it's fascinating because it's the most sophisticated model of the human brain that anyone has built, and it is infinitely less complicated than a real working human brain. Or is it is it <laughs> is it helping those people who are so convinced they're going to be able to make an electronic model of the human brain that perhaps there's something more going on in a biological system and in a, and some and a system that's embedded in a body? I think they're um curious. I hope they get their, their hubris. They need to dr- drop the hubris a little bit and see what they can well, learn. We come up with NLP programming because in the 70s in California, that's where NLP comes from. They had the first computers. They were like, computers can think. People can think. People must think like computers. And then we have 40 years of incredible progress in science that says, actually, your brain doesn't think like a computer thinks. At all. And... That's fascinating. But in Waterloo, they're working on quantum computing. And if they crack that, computers will start to think more like people think. They'll think in patterns instead of pieces. It's interesting. Uh, but still, uh, I, until they can embed it in a body and embed that body in a social context, I, I, just, don't, I just don't see it being... It, could be humanoid or human-ish or something, but not. I don't think anybody wants to do it to replace human brains. I think they're doing it to understand the remarkable complexity. Because no matter how expert you are, how much training you have, you still have a conscious mind that is trying to grapple with this thing that is you, but is apparently infinite. That's how it feels, right? Yeah. Interesting. So one of the things I've noticed about Zoom uh, is that while it's possible to solve the conundrum that you've mentioned of not being in space, two bodies communicating, there's a lot of information that does go between people through a screen. My experience has been that while it's been a great bridge, it doesn't sustain. It's not, it's not a substitute for face-to-face. Are you finding that too? No. Mm. That's, That's a delight for me. So the programs I teach are either 90-minute programs for people who've never met each other, or they're bigger programs, and they run now eight days or six days. And the longer programs, I'm finding when we come to the end of the program, we're seeing exactly the same connection in the people that have interacted for six days. Interesting. That they have the same feelings even without the fabulous snacks that we used to provide face-to-face, which, of course, bonded everybody. Home baking will do that. But um, you can't get the smell of banana bread into your computer. That's so funny. I've had – I don't spend a lot of time in Canada, but the few times I had, we gathered around baking goods. So there's supposed to be something (laughs) about being Canadian. So uh, uh, how does NLP differ from CBT? Cognitive behavioral therapy. It's not a therapy. 
Uh, but in terms of, I, I, that's an important point to make, but in terms of the process. In terms of the process, if you're trying to solve the same kinds of problems you can solve with CBT, probably looks exactly the same. It's very similar stuff. Okay. Don't quote me on that. It's because similar. I'm not a CBT practitioner. Right, right. It's but at least I've similar. read CBT. Yeah, and it, but if you were a sports psychologist helping somebody prepare for the Olympics and you were using NLP, it would look just like sports psychology. And if you were an ACT practitioner doing therapy through mindfulness, a lot of NLP would look just like ACT. So we look like a lot of different things. It's a core process that you can then apply to a lot of different ways of changing human thought and communication. And that communication and influence piece is really important. Well, the influence part, I, when I think of NLP, so often I think about use of language, people using NLP to persuade from either from the podium as a large audience or seems like people in sales use it. Is, am I wrong? And if so, tell me about that. Oh, that's the fabulous thing. In my rooms, I will teach therapists and coaches and people going through life transitions and salespeople who really want to sell. Now, I will not sell, teach a lot of the kinds of salespeople that you associate with NLP. It can be, it, it takes an enormous amount of willpower to use these tools 100% consciously because they mimic or they actually represent more than mimic natural human processes. And it's like if you were trying to ride a bike by paying attention to how to ride a bike. Right. You know, most people would just fall off. So there's a lot of junk out there. One of the things that attracted me to NLP that makes me totally different than everybody else in the field that I've met so far is that my background is in literature and storytelling and poetry. And I love the way NLP allows me to work with language with people to make them better at connecting and influencing, not because they learn some quick change patterns. That's not it at all. But because once you understand the relationship between language and states of being, you can, first of all, cut everybody a lot of slack because people aren't trying to mislead you. It's just words. There's not a good representation between a good fit between language, words and meaning unless you're willing to put it there. And so all of the nonverbal connection we make is really important. I start every program I run saying, you know that stuff people call small talk? I call it getting in sync talk. And until you're in sync and connected, there's no point in trying to exchange meaning. And I've watched what happens I, a little bit because usually I send everybody off into a breakout space so they're doing what we're doing. There's just two or three people talking to each other. Um, but as soon as they are free from thinking that small talk means performing and they think it's just getting in sync together, then they have these amazing connections. Not because they're doing something different, but because they're doing what works when talking works for them, when they're having conversations and meeting people that works. And NLP is really about slowing down your attention so you notice 
what's really going on in mind and body and intention when you're getting results that work. Some of that can make you very persuasive. I've been told from time to time I'm quite persuasive. But I was brought into NLP by a fast-talking sales guy who was really, really good and really quite unscrupulous. And um, what I got out of that was curiosity about how I could make everybody good. Because if everybody is good at listening and persuading, nobody has an unfair advantage. It's like the kitchen knife. You can't just give it to the people that you trust, you know? <laughs> right. There, there's just a ton packed into that little bit you just gave us. So I want to try to I'm break. Sorry, I'm like that. No, I love it. I love it. I, I want more. So I want to break it down a little bit. So so my, my first sort of, I, I have several different things I want to get at. But the first thing is, in my world, what you're describing is, I don't want to, put words in your, you know, say this is what you're describing, but what I'm experiencing as a component of what you're describing is something I associated with deep listening, yes. right? So, so I'm sure a piece of what you're describing is that listening part, listening with our whole body, listening, not, listening to the words, but listening to how we feel, listening to our states, as you said, you said, what state of being am I in? What, what am I feeling in my body while you're talking to me? And, and, and at the same time as still deeply listening to it at, in um, you know, sort of while I'm monitoring my body and other thoughts that occur to me while I'm listening to you, right? So that's part of what you're talking about. The, the part I have no idea about is what, is there some language I should be producing when I want to communicate back to you with some intention that I have? Uh, for the most part, language is an unconscious process. And this is what surprises people. Writers don't Think about the way the words go together and then write them. They write and then they see. When you're working like this, you can't be planning what you're going to say. Mm -hmm. You just say it. So when you're really clear on what kind of a connection you want to have with somebody, when you're really clear on what result you want to get out of that connection, and when you are, as you're saying, grounded in your body, so that your language connects naturally to physical phenomena because that's what your language will do if you're paying attention to your body. Then most of the time, what you will end up doing is sharing a story. And stories are a kind of influence that have been part of just about every human culture for as long as we can go back. Thomas King is an Indigenous author. He did a series of lectures in Canada. He lives in Canada. He says, the truth about stories is that's all we are. And people don't have to think about telling stories. Little, little, little children who couldn't put together a rational argument will tell you a story. As you understand story structure, I do have a PhD. There's a lot of critical thinking in my background. It becomes part of how you think and how you talk. So you're just always telling stories. I bet you can't be anywhere for 15 minutes without telling a story, given the work you do. 
except I've always found I have a trouble coming up with a story when I want it because I'm so I'm so steeped in material that I'm trying to convey that is very specific. I might be quoting scientific literature or I'm, I'm building a case in, rather than telling a story. Uh, yes. Is there a way to bridge those two things? I hope so. <laughs> it's hard. Students. Yeah. If you start by telling people, this is why you're here to listen. And then you tell them, this is why you should be interested in what I say. This is why you can trust me. And then you say, and this is what we want to talk about. These are the events. And you put some action in it. And then you end up with, this is why it's really important. People have been on a story with you. Even though you never told a story. But the experience is you've moved through all these different states together, which is exactly what happens when a good storyteller starts working. So that's a bit of an insight for me. Going through states together. That's a pretty powerful idea. Yeah? Yeah. Are there techniques to that? I guess, of course, some of those storytelling techniques, but I'll, I'll let well, you answer this that. is why most of our training is so messed up and why I, a very conventional person with a PhD from a very traditional university, ended up in this really crazy field that, if you look it up on Wikipedia, is embarrassing because it mm-hmm. is not something that is credentialed or anything else. It was because through NLP, I found the first place that connected your self-awareness with your ability to connect with other people. And if you try and teach communication without teaching self-awareness, first of all, you can't teach people to really be empathetic to other people's responses to their communication if they're not even aware of what's going on in themselves. Of course. Of course, but we have all over the Western world, lots and lots of communication programs that don't start with that idea. Mm-hmm. So we started with the, the idea, it's not all from NLP, I steal from everywhere because I'm a storyteller and we borrow. We acknowledge our sources, but, you know, Shakespeare stole. So steal from Viktor Frankl, the space between stimulus and response. Everybody knows that space. Everybody has moments in their life that were so fast on a clock, but they just hang there in your memory. So we all know that sometimes time is just zipping by and sometimes time just stops to give us space to think, to give us space to respond, to give us space to really learn something. When you start connecting with that, then you can do deep listening. I don't think anybody can do deep listening who hasn't, first of all, checked in with what's there to start with, because otherwise you end up with this mishmash of, I don't know if this is you or me, and maybe it was me all along and now I'm blaming it on you and that never goes very well. So presence with somebody else starts with all of the mindfulness traditions that get you to pay attention to yourself, accept what's going on so that you can clear it out and pay attention to somebody else. 
that's the first step in making a connection. And I've worked with, you know, people that you don't think would get this, lawyers and marketing professionals, and said, let's walk through what do you think is happening to this on the other side? If you want somebody to do something, step into their shoes. What do they feel like doing it? What are other people noticing? And they go, okay, it's just systems thinking. Yes, it is. But it's systems thinking about really basic human behaviors. And so another thing I love about what I do is it reaches people who aren't touchy-feely because we're all socially wired. Mm -hmm. When I started teaching NLP, I was taught about the conscious mind and the unconscious mind, and that was cool. I did literature. I talked about not much a fan of Freud, but Jung. (laughs) And uh, over the years, I've stopped using that language altogether. First of all, because unconscious is such a dumb way of describing it. It's the part of you that is conscious all of the time, that doesn't go to sleep, that's hyper aware, and we call it unconscious. That seems like a weird way of understanding it. I think it's your brain. I think it is, we know from science, part of you is like a superpower compared to the mind that is going, where did I leave my keys? <laughs> right. And and, and I, I think a better way, a better language is sort of supplanted in the public lexicon, the unconscious, we sort of moved over towards thinking fast and thinking slow, which is also imperfect and weird, but better than unconscious, I think. It is. Now, I like thinking fast and thinking slow, but that speed doesn't give you that sense of richness that is. hundred percent. I think that's exactly the, the, the word that's missing. And what is thinking fast and slow really missing? The body. Mm-hmm. Because the body is slow. It's where your instincts are, which is what is thinking fast. Mm -hmm. But the body is slow. So one of the things I really like are the developments in understanding emotional intelligence. Um, You know the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett? I do. I'm not on board with all her stuff, but she's very interesting. The idea, though, that your emotions are really your, the physiology of your emotions. Of course. And then you get a choice about what labels to put on them, if you have enough possible labels. That's a, that's a really powerful idea for a lot of people. And so teaching people to first notice the physiology, which might be slow, And then understand, if you've got a certain physiology happening, you can't go from that to a totally different physiology. I would say that's why telling people to calm down never works. Because it takes a while. You know a lot more than I do. I hate talking to doctors. No, no, it's fine. This is all good language. Really avoid. Don't, because you've you've talked about states and that that you're, people understand that. I really avoid terminology but Mm. basically once you've got all of those different physiological components really humming if you want to change to a different physiology you have to go through states that are sort of adjacent so this is why you can move from stress to excitement you can't move from stress to relaxed 
it's a it's not a complicated idea. None of my ideas are especially complicated. I try very hard not to have them be. Do, you know, Richard Feynman, because you talked about a physicist. Yeah. So if you really understand something, you can explain it to a five-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. When you, you said adjacent states, is it important to have a conscious awareness of adjacent states, what they are? You have to have a conscious awareness of physiology. Mm. And so this is the, it's not a once and done. I teach courses in six days. The reason I run my own business is I let people come back and do them as often as they want. I have people I've been teaching for 10 years. And it's because there's this infinite amount to get to know about yourself and to refine. And as we change, we experience states in different ways. So, you know, here we are, we're what, you know, like 30 minutes in this conversation and I'm realizing, I know you, <laughs> I know you, you uh, avoid the term therapeutic and therapist and all this stuff, but I was having a conversation with my son this morning about, you know, he, he's learning about all the different therapeutic techniques. And he said, you know, I, he was, bottom line is that if you have an empathic therapist, it doesn't matter what technique you're applying. I go, yes, that's been repeatedly and every study that's ever been done. Yeah. I mean, you need, you need equipment in your quiver to sort of have stuff that you can do that's appropriate for the given clinical circumstance, which is what you don't want to do. And I don't, I don't blame you for that, but having an empathic attuned human is highly Maybe we should come up with a better word, enlightening, <laughs> enhancing, well, therapeutic, therapeutic, therapeutic. But I'm in a field, Dr. Drew, where people think they can come in six days, learn to be a therapist, and oh. I want them to be really clear that's not what we're doing. Yeah. And I, I'm noticing uh, all along here, and I don't know if this is intentional or if you're aware of it or if it's just a talent you have, but you're using vocal prosody to great effect. Mm-hmm. Yes. Are, are you aware of that? Yes. <laughs> Is that part of the training? It's inevitably part of hanging out with me. Right. And, and, and so people who spend time with me start picking up some of it. I tell them I read to my children every night for 14 years. So if you want to play with your voice the way I do, get started. And then I say that's what we're here for with NLP because you can't take 14 years to get there. So let me, let me offer a little biology. Um, it turns out that when we're developing, we, have, we, we, we look like little fish when we're developing. And those, those gill-like structures are called branchial pouches. And the vagal nerve system is very much embedded in that developmental process. And it turns out that some of that socio-emotional neurological input to the vocal cords has the same sort of wiring. I want to say this in a way that's accurate. It's connected developmentally and from a wiring standpoint into the muscles of the ear. So we literally are wired. You talked about we're bodies and we're social. We're literally wired up to use vocal prosody as an expression of emotion, but then to tune our ear into it, we, we are acutely able to adjust these two tiny muscles in our ear to, to bring it into focus quite literally. So as a, as a mechanism for socio-emotional exchange, that's why a telephone, I, we were talking about, that's why Zoom can yeah. be effective in helping transmit some of the stuff we've been talking about. Absolutely. And, um, when I want to 
work with somebody who wants to change their state. So they have a situation where they're uncomfortable or a situation where they need to perform in a particular way. We do a lot of mental rehearsal preparation, using the body as an anchor for states so we can, I I always say, play what-if games. If I change the voice in which somebody talks about something, if I get them to drop their voice, so it's coming from down here, if it softens, then their state will change and they will literally have different expectations about that thing that they have described. That's impressive. Because your brain's that fast, right? It's all one piece. Mm -hmm. Headspace, everyone. That's right. It's your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. And I think everyone knows about mindfulness and the potential benefits. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever your situation, Headspace can help you feel better. Whether you're overwhelmed, anxious, depressed, Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. If you need some help falling asleep, Headspace has a wind-down session that members swear by. And for, say, parents, Headspace even has meditations you can do with your kids. Ten minutes of your day can make a world of difference in your life. We all know the benefits of taking time working on, say, your physical well-being. How about your mental health? That's right. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash drew. Again, that is headspace, H-E-A-D-S-P-A-C-E dot com slash drew for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditation for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash Drew immediately. Well, we're all feeling a little depressed in uh, COVID time, but if you're feeling overwhelmed, anxious, I think you need a little bit of help and depressed. BetterHelp Online Counseling offers licensed professional therapists who are trained to listen and to help with issues including anxiety, as I said, depression, LGBT matters, trauma, family conflict, self-esteem, and of course, more. And I've heard some really good reviews of BetterHelp online therapist. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs and then get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. Easily schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus exchange unlimited messages to communicate with your therapist, all at your convenience. Everything you share is confidential, of course. If for any reason you're unhappy with your counselor, you request a new one at any time, no additional charge. Join the 1 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp counselor. BetterHelp is an affordable option, and our listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code Dr. Drew. Get started today at BetterHelp, B E T T E R H E L P dot com slash Dr. Drew. Talk to a therapist online and get help. Is there, can we give people a little exercise or something that they can use on their own to practice that sort of, that seems like a very useful phenomenon. You can only do it if you listen to your voice. So to change somebody's voice without being there, they have to be somebody who can hear their voice. Now, if you hear somebody who talks like this, you know they're not listening to their voice. If you hear somebody who's talking like this all the time, you know they're not hearing their voice. Mm -hmm. So a better thing to do is to just practice. I'll give you this exercise. I adapted it. I take things from different places that fit with what I do. 
Patsy Rodenberg is a voice coach with the Royal Shakespeare Company, and she wrote a book called The Second Circle. And when she is teaching ordinary people about managing themselves through their breath, she says the first circle is you just breathe for yourself. So you can just take a moment and you can just be aware of breath coming in and out through your windpipe, through your nose, all that traditional breath stuff. So everybody's just breathing. It's nice and it's centering. But now you can actually imagine breath coming in and out through your skin. And if you start imagining the breath coming in through your skin and being released through your skin, and you'll start to be aware of your whole of your body as the breath comes in and out through your skin. And sometimes it's useful to push your breath out a little farther. So you're breathing in and out of a bubble around you. And you have this wonderful personal space where it's quiet and you are grounded and your breath is coming in from that bubble and it's going out to form that bubble. But then if you want to connect to somebody else, you can send your breath out. So that bubble now includes you and that other person. And as you send your breath out to include that other person, you're breathing in and out of this bubble that includes both of you. And you'll notice that you start breathing together and that you have heightened awareness. And this is the breath you use for those really close conversations. If you want to speak to a whole audience, you have to breathe big enough to be in a bubble with all those people in your audience. And you can do that now, and you know how many people are in this audience. But your breath can include those people. And if you're in a room where you need space from those people, you just breathe out past those people to the edges of your room. Now you'll notice that it starts getting really quiet when I start taking people into breath work like that. It's really, really quick. It's not meditation because you can't hold it without doing it. Meditation has other layers to it. I've done a lot of work this summer because um, I don't know if you know about the biofeedback headbands Mm -hmm. that you can use to support meditation, but the Muse was actually designed by... woman who does NLP and is from Toronto. And I I know Ariel. So I tried it. And I was like, okay, I want to see what's the difference between what I do in NLP and meditation. And I think meditation, that true state of calm is a different state. It's a state of release, state of control and quiet that I can do like that. That's not hard. And I can teach people to do that. Now you can do the same thing with sound. You can listen bigger and bigger. And I took that exercise from a sports psychologist who wrote a book called Feeling Great on Managing Stress in Kids. And I was doing work as a volunteer, running programs with children. And I wanted them to, you know, settle down and be ready to listen. And just pushing your ears out bigger and bigger. What you get is to this place where your head is really, really clear without any of the 
effort that is usually associated with it. Like in meditative traditions, it takes a long time and people kind of freak out about their head being clear. This isn't that. But there are so many times, especially in a time of crisis, where you think, if I could just have two minutes of peace. Now, I noticed you were responding when I started talking about breathing through your skin. Mm-hmm. And while I don't do therapy, occasionally I have clients and friends who have different kinds of problems. So I had a friend who was dying of lung cancer. And you have to think, how can you use breath to get grounded when the lungs are the source of all the trouble? And a a hypnotist gave me the tip. And if you breathe through your fingertips, then you can still get that grounding, settling, healing kind of quiet without aggravating any of it. And that works very well with different kinds of pain and problems that are kind of in the core. Um, Because we're so fast to take a suggestion that is useful. Our brains are so quick. They work in such sophisticated patterning that if they hear something and they say, oh, that'd work, they grab it. And the thing that I find fascinating is the way our brains continually reinterpret reality for us. And that sounds so spacey. But I bet you know exactly where we are in time. I bet you don't actually have to check the clock to know where we are. And I've looked and I haven't found any good scientific explanation of how the brain manages that trick. Of how people can go to retreats where they are asked to wake up without an alarm before sunrise. And they can do it. And you're like, how? I don't know. So the fact that we can make eye contact, even though it means that our brain is adjusting our visual perceptions, so it seems like we're looking right at each other, that doesn't seem like a complicated trick for a brain that knows how long five minutes is without a clock. So I am the world's biggest skeptic. I teach NLP for skeptics. When people come into my room, I'm like, be skeptical. I was skeptical Trainers are skeptical. Skepticism is a good thing. It means prove, prove it. But as skeptical as you can be, I think there's an awful lot uh, to be in awe of in human beings. And that's why, for me, I say I'm not, I don't do therapy because people will do it themselves. People just heal when they get connected to who they want to be, what kind of connections are possible through their body, how they want. And I've had people who, who do a couple, like a weekend with me with serious, serious medical issues. And then they come back and they say their doctor was amazed. I'm like, oh, okay. Am I advertising that? No, it was them. It was their willingness to go there, to connect their desire to um, not just to be healed, to do the work that got them there. <laughs> so I've got some things to say. Um, uh, when you were doing the breathing thing with me, I was aware of a desire to cry and some emotion was sort of spilling forward. I imagine that's a pretty common thing when people get into that state. No? 
Not that state, but yeah, I mean, tears I, are just I, part I, of how well, the body works. Yeah, it's, <laughs> let, let, let's just say that I've been in a, I've been in a lot of therapy, and I respond to this kind of relating in therapy. Right. It's sometimes called emotionally focused therapy, and so I naturally have a flood of feelings and right. things when I get into that state, and I just it just comes. I just trust it. Do you like it? Um, sometimes, not always. You know, sometimes it's a little unpleasant. Sometimes it's, but what I like is the spontaneity and the connection to the core, the, myself. So you're willing to pay the price. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's like a, have a choice about it. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't have a choice about so much how I'm feeling, but the emotion attached, I have a little bit of choice about. Right. I mean the the feelings come, and I can either go with the emotions or sort of sit with the feeling. If that makes sense. Does that make sense? Well, it makes sense to me that you chose to let them come. Yeah. That's what I teach. Yeah. That all of these emotions are choices we are making, not consciously, at the level of the wiring. And I've always associated this with sort of, it crosses over somehow with hypnosis. And you already mentioned some things you learned from (laughs) hypnotists, which I, I... was, was thinking that way before you even mentioned that. Is is there a formal connection between what you do and hypnosis? Or do you just think you just steal stuff from it? Yes. Yes, you steal. I, no. <laughs> yes, I do steal. Um, it's not my fault. Anytime you start telling a story, people will go into trance. Yeah. And often people who are really good storytellers sort of go into trance to tell their story. Interesting. Um, if you know some Irish storytellers telling with that wonderful Irish accent, it's impossible to stay out of trance. Mm. Um, NLP was started by looking at the work of three different therapists. And it wasn't that the founders of NLT were, were particularly interested in therapy. They were interested in change and influence, but therapy was sort of a lab that let them see whether or not things were happening. One was uh, Virginia Satir, Family Systems Therapy. One was Fritz Perls. And the other was Milton Erickson, who is um, the most famous hypnotherapist with an actual uh, background. He, He was a psychiatrist. So the Erickson Foundation will only teach hypnosis to medical professionals and related professionals. Um, But Erickson told stories. His hypnosis was the kind of hypnosis that I end up doing all the time and that I teach people to do, not because it's hypnosis, but because when you get people into their bodies and they're grounded and they are connecting with you, they lose track of everything else except the connection, and that's trance. Mm. When people choose to go into trance, that's like a deep learning state. That is not, it's not what popular versions of hypnosis are. It's not about controlling somebody else, but it's about helping somebody block out the distraction. Well, they're not even blocking it out. They're just unaware. We don't, if we're blocking something out, we know it's there. But somebody go in and make arrangements within themselves to sort out things that are very difficult you know because you've you've i know you've had people do this i'm not a doctor a therapist but you know i have this client and she's like well she's had 
breast cancer before she was 30 and then it was all through her and huge cancer experience. And now she's 35 or 37 or something. And she's had an MRI and the cancer might be back. But, oh, she didn't have the MRI. She, she had tests. The cancer might be back, but that wasn't her problem. She could deal with that. Her problem was she was scared of going into is the MRI. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's claustrophobic. Yeah. So there are all kinds of therapy where you'd say, okay, that's not really what you're scared of. But NLP isn't therapy. I just work with whatever people bring me, knowing that the real work is going on in them anyway. Is is there... Uh... And she wanted to experience trance. So I took her into a trance. But I also did like several hours of work over weeks with her before I took her into the trance she wanted to be into. And she got through the MRI. Do you find so, what you're calling trance to be spiritual? I do, but I do not teach it that way. And here's why. I don't know what it's like where you are. I teach in Toronto. If I'm in a room with a dozen people, I'm in a room with 10 different spiritual backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And ironically, until we had to give up our space because of COVID, we were teaching in the Toronto School of Theology building. It was this wonderful old Victorian building on the U of T campus. Um, But even in a school of theology, I don't talk about spirituality. People who are spiritual will use the techniques we work on to deepen their spirituality. People who are absolutely averse to any kind of religion will connect with themselves differently. It's um, that's not my work. And what it allows is that I have had amazing experiences where I'm running a room and there's a woman and a man doing an exercise together and she's in a headscarf and he's an Orthodox Jew and they are working together and sharing. And it's like, wow, Toronto also has a lot of new Canadians. So a lot of people coming from very different parts of the world. I'm going to push on you a little harder. Do you find it spiritual? For me, yes. Because I do. Okay. That's what I thought you were going to say. Because I do too. Uh, That's what I'm doing it for. Yeah. But that's 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 the answer. That's what I suspected. So, okay. That makes, I know exactly what you mean when you say that because I find it the same way. And I'm, I'm running low on time. So I want to finish up with one thing. I want to bring it back to something you said quite some time ago that intrigued me, which was this all started with a sales guy. What's yeah. the story? What, do you want to share that story with us? Uh, I was working part-time. My kids were in school and little. And I wrote, ghost wrote a book for a, a sales guy. And he had studied NLP. And he was all about it. And the effect that he could have was when we were working, he could make the voice in my head turn off. Now, I have a PhD in literature I talk all the time. My children talked all the time. Awake, asleep, doesn't matter. If I was on a desert island, I would tell myself stories. I would not be quiet. And the fact that the voice in my head went quiet and it wasn't scary made me so curious. So I watched him use all of these techniques for influence very, very consciously to manipulate people. And it was destroying him. And there's a book called The Game 
don't know if, yeah, you know it. I think it's brilliant because it really. It destroyed Neil. He ended up in a, going into treatment, yeah. all kinds of things. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, that's what happens yeah. when you take our natural social connections and you distort them. Mm-hmm. You break down. So it was a great object lesson. It made me really curious. It made me really determined not to only teach the good stuff to the bad guys. He wasn't a bad guy, but he he was a mess by the time he was finished. Um, like, you know, your best friends are suing you kind of a mess. Mm. Like It was bad. And so it gave me really good perspective on what I wanted to be and what I didn't want to be. I could have just stayed away from NLP because of all the associations. Um, but I happened to meet somebody who was quite different who was training and and he got to me the way people get to you. He needed a little help with marketing and <laughs> teaching. And I, I got involved as a helper and then just stayed for 17 years. I, I, I've come away from this conversation though with a much deeper understanding of what, because NLP always seemed a little confusing to me because everyone had a different idea about it. Some people point, point at Tony Robbins and go, that guy's practicing NLP. It's like, mm, I'm not sure I want to do that. And and then they talk about sort of techniques and language and things like that. But I, I find what you're talking about much richer, much more human, and much more useful. Well, we are only a little corner of the NLP world and not the biggest corner. Tony definitely has the biggest corner. I, I, I don't I, – that to me, that big corner, I, I always ask people to come out of those saying, oh, it changed me, it changed me, I'm going to do everything differently. I, I come back to them at six months and go, what's different? What do you, what's different? How's, tell me – it just – it changed everything. What's changed? What changed? What changed is they're thinking that they're doing everything differently when, in fact, they're just doing the same stuff all over again. But it's a great business model. Uh, yeah, I know, but that's not uh, to those people forever. It's disturbing. It's disturbing. I, I it disturbing. Um, I've seen some video where Tony does some really good work. Yeah, I know. I'm sure it's not sinister. I, it's, not, it's not sinister. That's not what I mean at all. It's just it's dangerous. It's dangerous, right? It's dangerous, and it, it's like. And and really, what is it, everybody? What what did you I, remember? I've, have you seen me talk to people who go through that? It, it, I'm always just pushing them, like, <laughs> oh, the, you you'll see, you'll see. And I talk to them six months later. Well, what what what? I, I'm interested in real change. I'm interested in you know real connection. That's and that, best that's, compliment I get. Yeah. One of my guys got up early on and said, "Other people talk about change; these people get change." Yeah. Yeah. When people talk about my course, if you say, do you use it? They say every day. So do you want to encourage people or are you too full already? Do you want me to put it out there where people can get into the course? Uh, well, NLPCanada.com, I'm never too full. And is it from all over the world you can take it because it's all Zoom? Well, it's all Zoom. Yeah. So you have to be able to work the time zones. Right. North America it works pretty well. And, and um, English and speak English. Hmm? And, English. and English, yeah, English, yes. only in English. Yes, ish. Yeah, I mean, in trying to do this in other languages, forget it. Can you imagine that? Uh, I, I guess if you yeah, were, if you were, if you were, if you were an or natural, if you were reared in in two languages, I guess then it'd be possible. But man, I can't imagine it. In, in a John Grinder, who is the, one of the founders, teaches people to learn languages rapidly using NLP. Oh, that's fascinating. That makes sense yeah. to me somehow. I imagine. Well, it's it's the when you release and pay attention, you get the, the connections much more quickly. 
whether it entirely makes sense, I don't know, because language acquisition is tricky. Yeah, agreed. Well, listen, it's been a privilege to speak with you. Uh, again, it's nlpcanada.com. It's Linda Ferguson. The book is Resilience, Grow Stronger in a Time of Crisis. Get the book, and uh, I hope we'll talk again soon sometime because I, I could keep this conversation going for quite a while. Oh, thank you so much. I was so intimidated. <laughs> oh, there's no, no no reason, zero zero reason for that. And uh, you, you did a great job, and I think – and what, what I was hoping to get is where we got, which is we were – kind of doing this you were sort of showing examples of it and we were talking on the theoretical frame and then we started doing it and that's that's where people come with us for this the ride as you say through the through the states it's a story it's a story i'm going to think about that differently and it's gonna, it's already helping me think about when i do public speaking and stuff i i do try to start with stories and i got to think about the whole thing as a story and i will use the breathing and the the listening piece because uh, it's it's uh it, it puts you in a certain state it's a framing That's- thank you so much and we'll see everybody next time for calling times and topics follow the show on twitter at dr drew podcast that's d-r-d-r-e-w podcast the music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the dr drew podcast now available on itunes and while you're there don't forget to rate the show the Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com support for this podcast comes from pluto tv ready to get away from it all free yourself with pluto tv stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free yeah free no contracts no subscriptions no fees Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android or iPhone and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.